There are lots of seminars on leadership today that are available for anybody who wants to go to them. But when's the last time you attended a, a conference or a seminar on followership? In fact, I think frequently in our culture, we view followers as people who are just unable to be leaders. But does the Bible say something different about that? We got our guest today, Dr. our colleague, Dr. Rick Langer. His, his new book that he co-authored with Joanne Jung called The Call to Follow uh, is about followership. Now, Rick, you've admitted to us that if you were looking to write a book that was going to put food on your table, this is probably not the one you would write. That, that is absolutely correct. Why, why did you and Joanne write this? Well, I know it sounds like I'm sucking up, but this is the Think Biblically podcast, and sincerely, I just felt like we are not thinking biblically about followership. We don't think about what it really means to be a follower. We often just don't think about it at all. Especially since we are all sort of called to be followers first it, and foremost, that's one of the points you're making. I mean, that was one of the things that seemed transparently obvious as Joanne and I were talking about this, is our, our first call, you, you read through the Gospels, you, you just look at what Jesus called people to be. He's relentless in saying, come and follow me. And the f term discipleship, ideas of servant, all these things that are just ubiquitous in the New Testament are all things that are attached much more clearly to following than they do to leading. So those are some things that got us going on this. So you talk about how to follow and follow well, but you also talk about a lot of misconceptions of leadership. Talk about some of those. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest ones is just the basic misconception that everyone should be a leader. And my philosophy side kicks in at that moment where I'm like, okay, conceptually, how in the world does that work? <laughs> I'm, I'm picturing the University of Texas marching band where everyone's a drum major. And I'm like, there's literally no music, right? The, the point of having a leader is to have a whole batch of followers. And conceptually, a leader is dependent on a follower the same way dropping is dependent on falling. You can't drop something that doesn't fall. You can't lead if no one follows. And so there's a weird incoherence when we think of everyone as a leader. Now, I'm happy to acknowledge, and I would be the first to say this, that almost all of us can look at areas of a life where we're a leader and areas of life where we're a follower. So it isn't an either or mm. thing. And that's one of, I think, the deepest confusions is you think of followers and identity thing. This is who I am, as opposed to a role I'm serving at a particular place and time in a situation. Um, so that's one of the things with, with the, the idea that we're all leaders and probably closely related is that to lead is what it means to be mature in Christ. And so the idea that it's fine for you to be a new Christian who isn't a leader yet, but you better be on the road to becoming a leader. And again, I'm simply saying, well, back that up for me biblically. Where, where is it that you find that? And I think the bottom line is that there is a gift of leadership. Many people are called to leadership, but the leading that they do is a byproduct of the fact that they were called to follow. They're, they're called to lead, so off they go and lead. But the point is they were called to do that. They're, they're leading as a follower. So do you think that, that our emphasis on leadership is overrated today? So overrated is an interesting word for this, right? It's a little bit like saying, is money overrated? And I'm like, I, I don't know. <laughs> Money's pretty important, right? But I, I would, I'd be more inclined to say we have an obsession with money or money has become an idol for us. Money's really a powerful thing. So to say it's overrated, I'm kind of like, I don't know. Likewise with leadership. I, I think we get kind of the way we get addicted, seduced, 
obsessed with a thing like money, I think the same thing happens with leadership. You get a little bit of it, you like it, you want more. Or you get praised for being a leader, even if you don't like doing it. This is one of the things that scares me, is I see people who are aspiring to leadership who I don't think are particularly good at it, mm. and I honestly don't think they enjoy it that much, mm. but they feel like they should, they must. That means that they are moving up the ladder, or perhaps that means that they're filling a role that isn't traditionally filled by someone of their gender or ethnicity or whatever it might be, but we just view that that is the success marker. And I'm like, wow, uh, wh- why is it that we view that as this you know, transcendent good and followership we just have absolutely no imagination for? So all of us have training in philosophy in different capacities. And I love that you approach this and other tasks as a philosopher because you want to carefully define terms. I'm curious if you could define leadership and followership. And I know there's huge literature about this. To me, one of the most simple definitions of leadership was just finding where people need to go and motivating them to get there. I was like, oh, that's a memorable way of yeah. leadership. But so what are your thoughts on on leadership, but even more importantly, define followership? Wait, to start with the leadership question, I, so this obviously comes up when you're writing a book on this, and I thought, well, let me just do some looking for leadership definitions. And there's always people who say, oh, there's so many definitions of leadership, you can't even you know, formulate one. And I'm like, well, that just sounds silly. We, we use the word, we understand that there must be a coherent definition. And I just looked at the Oxford definition for, for leading, and surprisingly enough, it includes followers. <laughs> oh. So everything you just said about, you know, having a, a vision, knowing, you know, what, what might need to be done and how to get people there, that's all great. But the person still isn't a leader if nobody joins him or her, right? <laughs> they, they, they think they're leading a parade, but they're really just going for a walk. So if you're going to be a leader, you have to have okay. a follower. And to flip that around when it comes to being a follower, the first thing I would say, it does require you to have a sense of deference to a leader. And the default mode, if you're a follower in some situation, when the leader tells you to do it, you just do it. That's the expectation. So that is that kind of sense of deference. Two things I would add to that for good followership, because this is part of the trick here is to say not just what counts as following, but what would be good following. And a second thing is that followers should be doing it with zeal and passion. I mean, it ought to get you out of bed in the morning because you see it as something. As long as you see followership is just the absence of leadership, it's a shadow, it's a nothing, you don't get out of the bed to go do nothing. Uh, so followership, once you get a vision for what it might mean, you say, wow, okay, this is the thing I better bring my A game to. You think of Jesus talking about his followers and says, man, you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you're not worthy. Um, you get distracted by something else, you want to go visit around, you want to check out some real estate you just bought. Hey, and so his version of being a take up, you know, follow me, take up your cross and follow me is pretty demanding. And it's demanding of this sort of wholehearted, zealous engagement. And the third thing I'd add to that, if, you know, first one being that you, you actually do submit to a, a leader, right. second one being the zeal, the third one okay. would be the, the issue of, of kind of owning the mission and being discerning about the mission. In other mm-hmm. words, we we are hardly short on examples of leadership who have departed from the proper mission of their organization. Mm. And I think one of the marks of a good followership is they've owned the mission of the organization such that they see a leader doing that. They're like, wait a minute, we can't do that because I'm here with this mission that I own personally. And you're starting to ask me to do things that are completely incompatible with the mission I'm committed to. So I'm 
I'm signing out. You know, that, this isn't for me. Or you call the person to account. Um, so followers in that sense have really strong obligations to be discerning about. Especially their as Christians, right? Because the way people evaluate our faith oftentimes is based on the kind yeah. of followers we are. So it seems like the stakes are even I, I could have written higher. a multi-volume work about yeah. failures of Christian leadership that Ooh. in large part have been supported by the abject failure of the followers in the organizations in question. It's one thing for a guy to go off the rails. It's another thing for people not to enforce the bylaws of an organization. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, guys, you know, you, you, they may be the elders or the board members, but the point is they have kind of a charismatic leader of the organization, and they just sort of throw out all the things. Ravi Zacharias had this happen in a big Ooh. way where the board report about when some of this came up, Ravi offered them to, you know, check out my phone or things like that. And they said, why would we check? It's Ravi. Yeah, there was no accountability. There was no there. accountability. Was and they none. just, they, they, instead of bylaws, they had bylaws. Yeah. See you yeah. later. <laughs> so, Rick, why do you think that the whole idea of followership has gotten the reputation that it has? There's sort of a stigma attached to it. And you put it, I like the way you put that, you're not a leader yet. Yeah. But if you're going somewhere, you will be. You better become one. Uh, how do we get to this place? Yeah. I, I, one of the articles I was reading described a guy who was doing leadership and followership training systematically and was doing a study of that and had people share their stereotypes associated, or the words they most associate with leading and following. And for following, it was words like sheep, Mm. lemming. My favorite was surf. Um, Not with the U, but with the E. Um, It just, that attitude is absolutely pervasive when I think about following. We, We think about it as a failure. I think a big part of the reason for that is our culture is kind of radically committed to autonomous individualism, what I call self, radical self-expressive individualism. Um, if, if I was Christian Smith, that would now be a famous acronym. But that issue, it isn't enough just to say, hey, I want to have personal freedom, the kind of which I think is conducive and necessary for human f- flourishing. It's like, I want freedom from all and any constraint. So I, so I don't follow anybody. I don't follow anybody or even anything. In other words, I want to be able to choose my gender. I want to be able to choose my pronouns without worrying at all about the issues that are going on in transgenderism. I just want to say how easy that is for Americans to just look at and say, oh, well, that sounds right, right? Mm. That we're so committed to people being able to do anything they want and anything that's a constraint is you're trying to define me or other things like that. So that's one of the challenges. If you're going to be a follower, you're going to experience a batch of constraints on your self-expressive freedom. It's an interesting way to put it because it assumes there's truth, which is a standard outside of the self. It assumes submission to reality and yet today we're told, live your truth, you be you. So I can see why there's a, a, a real tension there. Now, you maintain that Jesus was more of a follower than a leader. The books that I've read, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend <laughs> I've read all these books on leadership, is Jesus often said, oh, yeah, he's a leader, but he's a servant leader. You're kind of taking a different approach, saying, no, he was more of a follower than he even was a leader. Explain. Well, if you're going to write a book, you ought to— at least make one crazy assertion of it somewhere, right? So that was mine. Um, but unfortunately, we're going to make you defend it. Yeah. So All let right. me let me try to so defend. This is your only one. If you say two, you're out. <laughs> right. Okay. Good. So for the first 
point that I think should be obvious but bears making is that I'm referring here to Jesus incarnate. In other words, Jesus of Nazareth, not the eternal second person of the Trinity, right? So there's a bunch of things about Jesus incarnate. He got tired, he sweat, he cried, he, you know, suffered, and all these sorts of things that we wouldn't associate with the eternal pre-existent Christ. So I'm not talking about that Christ as being a follower. I'm saying Jesus of Nazareth. And then I guess two big things I would say about this. Number one is even the phrase used about servant leadership. I had this point, I had written a whole book chapter on uh, leadership, kind of an integrative theology of leadership for an academic book, and I'd done a fair bit of speaking and other things on this thing. When I talked about Christian leadership, I would talk about servant leadership if anyone, no one did ask me because everyone assumes that all cool. Where do you get this notion? Well, it's, of course, Matthew 20 or Mark 10 or wherever, and that's where Jesus talks about you, sure. know, you need to be, you need to be what? You need to be a servant leader? He doesn't actually say that in the passage. He says the Gentiles lord it over people and exercise authority over them, but it's not supposed to be like that with you. You're supposed to become the servant, the servant of everybody. And in case you're wondering what that means, slave would be a good word to throw in there because that's the word he uses. And that's what he says about himself. I didn't come to be served, but to seek and save those of us. I came to give my life. I came to serve others and give my life as a ransom for many. And you realize the phrase servant leadership literally doesn't occur in the passage, number one. And number two, literally the punchline of the passage is that he actually just plain serves people. That doesn't mean he couldn't have been a leader. It just means the place that we most normally drop anchor when we think of the leadership of Jesus is in those passages. And I'm just saying those passages don't say that. Obviously, when he says, come follow me, he's exercising leadership. Yeah, I mean, there's places you can certainly drum that up for Jesus. The second thing, and this is the part that was kind of my aha moment when I was working on the book, was Jesus' own self-conception was as a follower, not a leader. So if you think about the normal things you associate with like a leader and a follower, the follower kind of gives the commands, or the leader gives the commands. The follower either follows them or passes them on to whoever's sure. supposed to get them. The leader gives the message. The follower delivers the message. The leader kind of makes the choice, asserts the will. The follower implements it. Read through the book of John. And basically at every point, you'll find Jesus identifying with the follower side of that chain, not the leader side. He says, the commands I give you, I got from the Father. I'm passing them on to you. I don't know the schedule. He sent me. The only things that I do are the things I see him doing. So he's the exemplar. I'm the one who's following the example. And you just keep going and going and going. And I put this in the book. I think there's 12, 14 different instances of that exact pair. And in every case, Jesus is saying, let me tell you how I conceive of myself. I see myself as being the one who's following the Father. And so what you see emerging from the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, I don't need to take the time to unpack the similar thing in Paul, but you kind of end up just with a chain of followership, not a chain of leadership. So Jesus is following the Father, and Paul is following following Jesus, and Timothy's going to be following Paul, and then Timothy's supposed to have the people that he's working with follow him, who's following Paul, who's following Jesus, and it's like a mammoth chain of follow the follower until it actually gets all the way back up to God. And at every step, people are conceiving their first task is getting a clear enough vision of their exemplar that they can actually successfully follow him. 
So that's why I make the crazy claim. Jesus seems to make it about himself, so I thought I'd join the party. <laughs> I'm going to tackle another crazy claim here in just a second. But <laughs> there were two? Oh, no. There's, there's another one, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, there's a, fo a, a foundational question first. You've, you've maintained that it's possible to be a good follower, which suggests that it's also possible yeah. to be a bad one. So what does a bad follower look like? Well, actually, the good news about that is we have pretty good stereotypes about a bad follower. The problem is we don't have anything else in our mind when it comes to following. But I would absolutely say the, the, the bad follower is the mindless one. And also passive. I think that's a great word for what a follower shouldn't be. So the passive owning of a mission statement where you don't really own it at all. You just kind of say, yeah, whatever. Um, the passive doing of your duty, these are not the things that Jesus praises in the servants. And you look at all the master-servant parables that you have in the gospel. He doesn't say, you were so passive. That was just perfect. I Thank you so much. You never see that. And then also discernment. You think about, you know, that we, we are called sheep in, Matthew, in John 10. But it's interesting. These are sheep who know the voice of their shepherd. And they don't listen to the hireling. In other words, these sheep are discerning sheep. So the bad follower would be the undiscerning follower. They just kind of go anywhere. They aren't self-reflective. They haven't owned the mission. They don't understand what they're doing. They just passively roll along. I wonder if one place where we're seeing this now more in the business, the business community, for example, instead of the great resignation, we're now referring to this as the silent resignation where people in the workplace, they're doing just the minimal amount to get wow. by to get a paycheck, but without, without any connection to the mission of the organization, uh, without really any connection to their own, you know, their own sense yeah. of what's important. Uh, I wonder if that would be a, you know, a, yeah, a business so example of a bad follower. I haven't thought about it, but yeah, I think that'd be a perfect example of what, what I would be considering a bad follower, because they are, in a sense, following. So I, I get why we put them in the category, but I'm saying that isn't the, that isn't the kind of follower that would be praised by Jesus. So here's the, here's the other crazy claim okay. that, that you made, <laughs> and that is that in the Scripture, sometimes God gives organizations bad leaders because the rest of the troops are bad followers. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, that, so, was, that was a new, new sentiment to me. Uh, spell that out a little bit, where, where you see that in the scripture. Well, so let me first say that, you know, I didn't really come up with that. Calvin did. Um, so this is beginning you giving credit where credit, credit is where due. credit is due. This is an observation he made both in his commentary on Romans fourteen or Romans thirteen about the kind of following habits. You know, the authority that comes about should be a blessing, but oftentimes it isn't. It's because the followers have in effect rebelled, and God sends this person as a judgment on rebellious followership. So with that little nugget dropped into our mind, it's pretty easy to see where some of this comes biblically, where you think of people like. Aaron leading, you know, whatever, Exodus uh, 32 or 34, where he's um, creates a golden calf for the people. So is that a leader who's leading the people astray? Well, you read the passage and you're like, that's pretty unfair to Aaron to say, you had all these great followers who were going through the wilderness. And Aaron just suddenly said, it's Tuesday, let's have a golden calf. You know, it, it didn't work that way. And when you read through the, the passage, you find basically about a dozen times that God condemns the people of Israel. And a couple of times he does pin it on, on Aaron too. In other words, Aaron doesn't get off, but it seems like the bulk of the burden falls on a followership that was committed to disobedience. Same thing happens with Samuel with appointing a king 
for Israel. He doesn't want to do it. God doesn't seem to want him to do it. But the people basically demanded of him, says, okay, but let me tell you what you're going to get. And there it is. Habakkuk goes on a rant about all the terrible things that are going on in Israel at this time. And, you know, God, why don't you do something? He says, I'm planning on it. And Habakkuk's like, well, what's that? I'm going to send these guys called the Babylonians, mm. and they will conquer you and rule over you. And Habakkuk is like, uh, could, could we opt out of that option? <laughs> but that's a pattern that I think God does. And I think we have hit a point in America today where I worry about we're going to be at the exact same place because I look at our citizenry, if we're talking politically, I look at our followers, if we're talking about our churches, and I'm like, I'm not sure we are being discerning. I'm not sure we're committed to being biblical first. I'm not sure we're saying Jesus is Lord, so I'll follow his his values, not my own. Hmm. Um, I'll, I'll live in the upside down kingdom where weakness means power instead of power means power. I don't think we're very open to that. And I'm afraid we'll get leaders who exploit that. Hmm. You've talked a lot about what it means to be a bad follower. So mindlessness, lack of passion. What does it mean, practically speaking, since we're all called to follow Jesus and we see Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ. What does it mean to be a good follower? Well, we... In the back of the book is a, actually a, a study guide that's meant for people to do together. And one of the things that we do in it, just say, okay, think about your life and feel free to pick up very ordinary things. I'm a, I'm a soccer mom. I'm a single dad. I'm a whatever it is. And stop and ask, okay, that is a role that has been given to you in which you need to exhibit excellent following. Okay. What would be your mission in being a you know, a mom or a dad or a person working in a mundane job or whatever it might be. Um, what is it I'm trying to do in that context and actually spell it out for yourself. Think about what parts of what's demanded me. Am I doing well? What am I doing poorly? And you really take on the ownership and kind of a process of self-evaluation of how I'm doing in a follower. And and it's a it's not a really simple thing. That's why we kind of unpack it over like six or eight sessions in that study wow. guide, because it's like, no, t- this is what we mean. Take following really seriously, because um, it's it's worth it. And, and we, it, not just in terms of the extraordinary things, but the very, very ordinary things we do. But you you mentioned some pretty specific practices yes. that, are, that are necessary to cultivate followership. What, what are some of those? So some of the practices that we unpack, and this is where uh, Joanne is, she, she, you know, one of her life expertise, <laughs> expertise yeah, yeah, and kind yeah. of spiritual formation things. But that was one of the things that we began to talk about is that you begin to look at what's asked of a follower and you're like, oh, I'm not sure I want to sign up for that. And so you realize there's a whole set of character qualities, including things like humility, kind of a fierce determination, a willingness to do things, even if you're not praised for doing them. That's a demanding set of things. So we have a whole chapter in there that's kind of on spiritual formation that probably could literally be lifted out and dropped into just a book on spiritual formation and fit fine. But we're simply trying to say this task of being a good follower is literally a thing that's demanding for our souls. And there will be very hard things associated with being a follower. So just, so at the very end, what you do, this is where I think your your book is super practical and helpful. You're like, okay, identify areas where God has called you to serve, where you're a follower. Begin to lay out what God, according to the scriptures, would call you to do in this situation. If you were si- you're asking, like, if you were sitting down with Jesus, 
What yeah. do you think? So rather than you telling people, here's exactly what you should do, you're inviting people to be reflective and thoughtful and biblical in how they do it rather than just passive and adopting certain ideas of what we think it means to follow. Yeah. And I think even as I hear you saying that, John, so number one, yes, absolutely. The other thing that that what you just described teases out is the, the level of kind of very personal ownership. So we have a sense that when Jesus gives a call, it would be a call to lead. And if all you got was a call to follow, then Jesus didn't really give you a call. And what we're trying to do is say, no, no, he gave you a call. <laughs> and own it like a calling, like he, he, he looked you in the eye and said, this is what I want you to do. Uh, we, we give the example of Brother Lawrence in the book mm-hmm. that's a great example of a guy who's doing a very mundane and ordinary task, and he absolutely 1,000% believes this is a task that's given me for Jesus, and I do it in the presence of Jesus, and I do it to honor him, and in doing so, he found a really, really meaningful uh, life. But I can see somebody pushing back and saying, you know, when, when I signed up to follow Jesus— I didn't sign up for an ordinary life. You know, I signed up for abundant life. I signed up to do something extraordinary. (laughs) Uh, But it sounds like you're suggesting that, you know, good followership sort of means being content with an ordinary life. Help us with that. So I guess I was on a rampage of saying crazy things, huh? (laughs) Yeah, you said a few more than you think you did. So I'm looking at the three of us, all of whom have a long background in crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, who are like absolute classic people who organize around, come come join us as we help come help change the world. We're changing the world. That's what we do. And so I totally resonate with that. I guess the obvious question is, is that what Jesus seems to be promising to everybody? Because um, it certainly is a thing that I think s- some people do in a way, but some people apparently are given pretty ordinary tasks. And back to Brother Lawrence, I remember reading about him talking about kind of the embarrassing things he had to do because he had a hurt leg. It made him hard for him to do kind of ordinary tasks. He hated kitchens, and he spent his entire life working in a kitchen. And I'm like, this guy has a miserable job. How did he make it so meaningful? Um, and the point was, apparently God had wanted him to actually serve in that way. He owned it that way and discovered that was true. So I'm thinking about all this, and I realized I'm half happy with that. Because if someone told me, Rick, I want you to be like, I want you to be the next Brother Lawrence. I'm thinking, yeah, I want to be the next guy who's a master of the spiritual life and writes a book that's translated into 500 languages and is still in print 400 years later. And it's like, Brother Lawrence never did that. All of that book was sayings that were recorded by other people. It wasn't even written down till after he was dead. He died in the kitchen. Okay, so, so let me ask you this, the way you frame it. We have a background in crew. And I not only have background crew, but a father who has been an activist, yeah. written that book that you're describing. So there's a strain of like, go change the world for Jesus, fulfill the Great Commission. But then there's this sense you're saying of this ordinary example. Is the task for us to follow to just figure out where has God placed me in history? What gifts has he given me? And maybe it's prestige, maybe it's serve like Brother Andrew, and those are equal ways of honoring and serving the Lord if we're following. What exactly is the calling to follow given the tension that's there? 
Well, so I think what you described is absolutely right, where you just say, I don't know what Jesus called me to exactly. And in particular, in any given situation, because like I said, most of us do both and. We, we follow and we, we lead. Um, but on the ordinary life issue, I, it's interesting to go back and read to the epistles and go, how much of the epistles are talking about how do you treat your spouse? Mm. How do you treat other people around you? How do you do your job? All of the one another's, and they're almost always talking about ordinary life things. They're stunningly lacking in miracles. Hmm. They're rare to have uh, exhortations to go. Uh, the phrase sharing your faith doesn't really occur. It kind of occurs in Philemon, but it's not in the sense that we use it for evangelism. It's amazing how much Paul is expecting the bulk of the people in the churches that he's creating, ministering to, and writing to people who are pastoring are going to be preoccupied with what you might call ordinary life. So my crazy claim is our ordinary life is way more extraordinary than we think it is. And that's true for Peter, right? First Peter, it's just this simple suffer well, love your neighbor, obey the rulers... Make yeah, it, make it your aim to live a quiet life. Yeah. Hmm. So here's my my question: is, Do you think we have misunderstood or misun, misapplied the notion of the abundant life? So I kind of think we we do. Now that I, I, to to clarify this relative to crew and some of our heritage, that I don't think crew does anything special in that regard. I think Americans, when they think of an abundant life, mm. tend to think of all these things, both including this kind of radical, self-expressive individualism, and also abundant money, abundant power, abundant influence, all those sorts of things. So we just fill that in, and I really do think what Jesus is looking at maybe a better way to frame that. What's the abundant life? I'm like, well, how about the life that Jesus said you would get if you came and followed him? The, the life of the, the easy burden, the, the, the easy yoke and the light burden. Um, you know, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and lowly in spirit and you'll find rest for your souls. I think that's descriptive of the kind of life Jesus would have, have us live, regardless of the role that he calls us to. It's, we're, we're to be people of the easy yoke and the light burden because we've adjusted to following Jesus. Um, I, as a little side note on that, um, if you've ever skied, I grew up in Colorado, did a lot of skiing. There's these rules of skiing. So you lean out from the mountain, you put your weight on the downhill ski, you put mm. your bend your knees, put your shoulders straight down the mountain. And I remember trying to learn to ski and I had these rules in my head. And these rules were like bondage. I am leading out from the mountain. My, you know, my friend is telling me, lean out from the mountain, you know, and I just absolutely hate it. Well, in the course of events, I ended up kind of mastering and internalizing all those rules. And suddenly, skiing was a delight. It was liberating. Why? Because I was, quote, following the rules of, of skiing, and I found my yoke to be light, and my burden was easy. But the process of learning those rules was hard. And I think that's what I don't want to short circuit to say. We need to become disciple to Jesus. And that's where the, the spirit, the soul rhythms and things like that say we need to shape our souls in a Jesus-like way. And we will discover at that point, whether we're leading or following, that we have found an abundant life. We've found the kind of life. And that sort of life will be its own reward. It will bring with it the kind of self-reward that obeying the rules of skiing doesn't need someone to give you a reward afterwards. You have a raw delight in skiing itself. And likewise, we have a raw delight in just living an ordinary life that's pleasing to God. You know, I'm reflecting back on the conversation we had with our friend Brent Waters, mm. his book on, on, you know, common, um, common callings and ordinary virtues. Yeah. Mm. And his claim, I think he's right about that, is that so much of how we are formed into Christ-likeness 
happens in just the everyday fabric of our lives and the decisions that we make and the way we live that out. And I wonder if the abundant life has more to do with how we are formed into Christ-likeness uh, as then, then we have sort of with this sort of, you know, big picture, I'm changing the world, you know, I'm going to be recognized, all of that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wonder if, that's, if that abundance is more uh, an internal thing rather than something we look at externally. It, you know, it, it, it's an interesting thing to think about. Imagine two kids, two teenage kids, and they have roughly the same amount of stuff in their life. And one is a person who's profoundly grateful for the fact that their parents have given them all this stuff and they've had the opportunities they had. The other one is always worried about what they're not getting and comparing themselves with someone else. And I just asked the question, who has a more abundant life? And I'm going, you know, obviously it's the person who has gratitude for all the things that they actually have as opposed to this unceasing longing for the next thing up the ladder. And so I think there is, that is a huge part of it is just saying, oh, I'm going to be a person who fully embraces the life I actually have and lives it to the fullest, but not going to be anything other than thankful for the things I have. It's one of the, one of the best definitions of contentment I've heard is sort of right to your point. It's wanting what you have. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's right. And uh, there's, I think there's some, there's, I, I think we've misunderstood what it means to live life abundantly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everybody wants everything they want, right? Because, That's yeah, not a genius we, thing. We but, see that largely, I think, through Western, you know, American prosperity lenses. Yeah. And I don't think that's the way Jesus intended that at all. Yeah. Now, I, I think if you want to have everything you want, you, you, you should be worried a lot more about what you want than what you have. Because we think our wants are fixed. And that just isn't true. Part of good soul formation is literally changing your desires. This is a very Augustinian notion about the, the mark of the disciple isn't that they know the things of God, but that they love God. It's a question of right place desires, right placed affections. And the fact that you might have displaced, misplaced, ill-placed desires, I think all of us should assume. So a big part of discipleship is literally the changing of what you want. That's a pretty countercultural idea today because when okay, I Okay, my students, fourth crazy yeah, idea. <laughs> well, so I didn't say crazy, I said countercultural. Okay. It should be. Nah, that's different. That's uh, not exactly the UBU thing, is it? That's that's my my point yeah. is when I ask students what they think freedom is, doing what you want without restraint. Yeah. And I'll give an example of something somebody wants that if they do it, they're not free. So if a guy says, I just don't want to spend time with my family, I just want to look at porn all night, he wants to do it. If he does it, He's not free. The problem is his wants are not right. So how do we cultivate our wants yeah. through spiritual disciplines, the Holy Spirit, et cetera? That's what it means to be free, and it means to really be a follower of Jesus. I love that. I've got a question for you, though, about encouragement. There's a lot of people who don't feel called to lead but feel pressure that they're supposed yeah. to be leaders. What, what encouragement would you give to someone who doesn't feel called to lead and then as someone who has been called to the role of a leader. Yeah. So let me first talk about the person who doesn't feel called to lead. Um, one thing I would, I'm glad you brought this up because I think that one of the first things I'd say is, is don't ever make that make you think that you shouldn't end up leading one day. I think one of our problems mm. is we're short on people who don't want to lead, but would really be gifted and blessed in their leadership and they would gift and bless to other people when they led. I'm worried that we have too many people who desperately want leadership and think that their wanting constitutes a divine calling. 
Um, and I'm like, I'm not sure that there's a real correlation between an intrinsic desire to lead and a divine call to lead. Especially since that, that could be nothing more than ba- what I would call baptized narcissism. Yeah, I mean, I worry that it often, it often is. Yeah. Mm. So it, it is, that's a really interesting question. And I think one of the, I, I think people who feel compelled to lead in a good sense of being compelled are some of the people I'm thinking, that's probably the guy you really want doing it because they take the deep breath and say, okay, I would much rather do, you know, the following set of 12 things. Um, but I feel called in this setting to do this. Scott, I think, just to point this out, so Scott's our dean of faculty here at Biola um, at Talbot, and he's also working in the president's offices, you know, working with the mission. These are kind of administrative roles. I don't know that that was a big thing that you woke up one day and say, dang, I'd like a little more administration in my life. I'd like more conflicts. Can I have all the problems come to me when I have a cranky person who has a problem with what Biola's doing? Let them talk to me. I, I doubt that you thought all of that. But in some sense, I'm going, if you did want that, I'd be a little more worried about you serving that role than if you didn't. But if you, on the other hand, look at it and say, you know what, given that, is this an important role? Yes. Is there someone obviously more qualified or better able to do it than I am? I'm not sure there is. So perhaps I should say yes to this that I wouldn't really want to. Um, And I think probably all of us have had those situations where we're sometimes pressed to do things that you wouldn't just sign up. I know I have. Um, And it's like, that's okay. I appreciate that. Other than that. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, Good. there you go. He's learned to handle these questions well. <laughs> well, the, uh, there's a lot of hard jobs in leadership that are kind of unrewarding. The, and, and some of the things I just was describing for you, Scott, are, are non-glamour jobs. They may be, they may have power association, whatever, but they aren't things that you just go, wow, this is a glamorous role. Well, I think we have found some people feel called to be in the position of a leader, but not actually to do the work of a leader. Yeah, right. Those are two mm. vastly yeah. different things. Yeah, they are. They are. And I, I mean, I, I'm actually a bit skeptical of people who aspire to leadership positions. Yeah, there's, there's a, I think there's a healthy way to do that, and there's an unhealthy way to do that. And it's a little hard to know sometimes from the outside. And that's part of why a lot of things we did with the study guide in the book are really aimed at kind of self-reflection, but then quickly associate with other friends who know you well enough to give you some feedback on whether or not you've accurately perceived yourself. So this is where the genius of a thing like this, I have small groups, not of our book, but is doing soul searching, but doing it not alone, where you get feedback from others. So, so the challenge in writing a book like this is probably the people who read it and work through that study are less likely to be the people who need to read it and work <laughs> through that study. So if you're watching this and your instinct is, oh, I don't need to do that. I've got it figured out. That means you're exactly the person who needs to work through this before you leave. Yeah, that that is likely true. Um, yeah. Well, I think let that be a, a final admonition to, to our to our listeners on this, uh, because if you yeah if you think you've got this wired, then you may be exactly the kind of person who who in our view would need to read this incredibly stimulating book. I mean, you and Joanne have done a great job with this. 
uh, and we we so commend this to to our audience. This is you've you've really done a yeoman's work for for the kingdom, and for, I think for for elevating the people who don't feel called to leadership. Yeah. And I really would underscore that as well. For people who are feeling like, man, has leadership passed me by? Is my life meaningful? And things like that. My hope would be a person could read this and say, oh, wait a minute. I can find a lot more meaning in the, in the place God has put me right now than I ever thought. And what a good word. Rick, thanks so much for being with us. This has been a great conversation. Hope you've enjoyed this. I want to remind you that if you've enjoyed the video, we also have an audio version of our podcast, Think Biblically, that comes out weekly. Uh, I encourage you to, to sign on, subscribe to that, uh, and become a part of that as well. 